Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. So this Christmas, we have been through, going through the Christmas season, um, looking at different carols, uh, songs that we are familiar with and sing every Christmas time, and um, just looking at the biblical and scriptural um, basis behind all of them. And, uh, and so we talked about um, that longing for, for, for that uh, promised Messiah, O come, O come, Emmanuel. And last week, we talked about joy and the difference between joy and happiness, joy to the world. And this morning, we are talking about probably, without a doubt, my favorite Christmas carol of all of them, um, which was just sung, O Holy Night. And the reason I love it is because there are so many great lines in that song. Um, and in fact, this morning, what we're going to do is take a little bit different approach than we have been through this series. I want to take apart each of these special lines that I think speak to what, um, what this message of Christmas is really all about. The other thing that's, uh, that I love about this song is knowing a little bit of a historical background and how this song came about. Because it was actually written in the mid-1800s. And um, it was written because a parish priest went to a local wine merchant and poet um, whose name was um, uh, Placide Capot and asked him if he would write a poem for their Christmas Eve services. And, um, and the, the amazing thing was is that um, Placide Capote was not a believer, was not much of a churchgoer, wasn't a Christian, um, actually was kind of known around town as a bit of a rabble rouser. Um, but he wrote this incredible poem, and he loved it so much that he actually enlisted the help of a friend composer of his, whose name was Adolf Charles Adams, to put the music to it. Um, the thing about Adolf Charles Adams is he wasn't a believer either. He actually was Jewish. <laughs> and so this a song was put together by the two of them, and it became instantly popular, and it was sung over and over again for years in the, in the French church. And until the leaders of the church discovered that it was written by an unbeliever and that the music was put together by a Jewish person, they finally decided that this song needed to be banned. And so they actually banned the use of the song. They denounced it as unfit for church services because of its lack of musical taste and its total absence of the spirit of religion. I happen to disagree with their assessment. <laughs> I think it is one of the most wonderful songs that was ever written. And I don't know what, believers or not, they were God-inspired when they put this song together because the lines of the song speak to really what the message of Christ's coming was really all about. A thrill of hope, that the soul found a sense of worth, and that his law is love, and his gospel is peace. And I kind of like to take those three words and take that, those lines from that song and kind of take them apart a little bit and look at them, because I think they really express, I think what John was trying to convey when he wrote in his gospel, the very beginning of, of, of Jesus' ministry. And he doesn't tell the birth narrative of Jesus. He kind of puts it in the cosmic perspective and tells what God was doing behind the scenes in the birth of this child 2,000 years ago. So if you want to follow along with me, John, John's gospel, chapter 1, this is how John begins the story of Jesus' life and ministry. In the beginning, speaking of Jesus, was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. 
There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He only came as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent or human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. And out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Hope, worth, and love. In the birth of this little baby 2,000 years ago on that oh holy night, God was giving the greatest gift he had ever given to this world. And all of that was found in the life and the ministry of this one born 2,000 years ago. That in Christ, God was giving us, first of all, this gift of hope. The writer of the song puts it this way, a thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. Weary, that is a pretty good description for our world. We live in a weary world, weary of fighting, weary of wars, weary of oppression and justice. We live in a weary world. And in fact, the story of the Bible is the story of a weary world. And the central figure in this story is a God who comes to this earth and takes upon himself the weariness of this world and bears it on his own shoulders. It's an incredible story. John puts it this way, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And he was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. It's the story of our world. And it is your story and my story. A weary story. And and we go through life and we think we know our story. We think we know what's going on. We think we understand. We think we are in control of everything. And then suddenly something happens that shakes everything apart and rattles our world. And we finally realize we don't know the story that we're in. That we are confused about the whole thing. The world did not recognize him. He came to his own. But his own didn't receive him. See, that's your story. That's my story. That we didn't recognize the story that we were in. We thought we did. We thought we understood it. But suddenly, through something that happens in our lives, we realize we're not in control and we don't understand and it doesn't make sense. I had a story a while back about um, an elderly couple. They had been married for over 60 years. And um, 60 years of sharing life together, sharing everything, no secrets, except that the wife had this shoebox 
that she kept in her closet in the back on the top shelf. And, and, and she told her husband, don't open that box. Don't ask about it. And so for all of their years of marriage together, he never asked about it, never gave it a second thought until one day the woman was diagnosed with an incurable disease and was told by the doctor she didn't have long to live. And so in order to kind of get their affairs in order, um, the husband went to the closet, pulled down the shoebox and brought it to his wife's bedside. And she agreed it was time for him to know what was in the box. And he opened the box carefully, and in there were two hand-crocheted dolls and a stack of money totaling $95,000. And he was just kind of blown away, and he asked about the contents of the box and what that was all about. And she said, well, when we were engaged, shortly before we got married, my grandmother took me aside, and she told me the secret to a to a healthy and and happy marriage is to never fight, to never argue. And that if I was ever angry with you or ever frustrated by you or ever ever, um, feeling discouraged by you, that all I needed to do was to keep my mouth shut and crochet a doll. And he looked at the box and these two little crocheted dolls and he was just moved. He was so touched by it. He said, honey, this just moves me so deeply. 60 plus years of marriage and just two crocheted dolls. Now, that explains the dolls, but what about the $95,000? She said, oh, that. Well, every time I crocheted a doll, I sold it at a crafts fair for $5. (laughs) That is a picture of the human condition. We think we know our story. (laughs) And then suddenly something happens, and we realize we don't know the story at all. What happens when you find yourself in the middle of a story that you don't recognize? What happens when life falls apart and everything seems hopeless and the story doesn't make any sense? The answer to that is found in Jesus. A thrill of hope. A weary world rejoices. See, the idea of biblical hope is very, very different than the way we use the word hope. Because when we use the word hope, we're usually talking more about wishful thinking. Like, I hope I get that Xbox One for Christmas. We hope. We don't know. We hope so. But the idea of biblical hope is much deeper, much stronger than that. In the same way that we talked about last week, the biblical idea of joy is much greater than happiness. That, that hope has to do, actually, the, the Hebrew, one of the Hebrew words for hope has to do with this idea of, of a line that is secured and is being held taut because we're hanging on. That there is something assured, there's something strong on which I can put my hope and trust in. And that is what sustains me, that's what holds me. It's, it's, like, it's like a lighthouse at the entrance to a safe harbor in the middle of a raging storm at sea. And a ship that is being tossed about by the winds and buffeted by the waves and all of a sudden sees this light and knows there is shelter, there is safety, there is security. That's the idea of biblical hope. That's what John wrote about. The the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That there is a hope that, that our life does make sense. When we entrust our life into his hands, that he makes sense out of it. There is purpose. There is meaning to it, even though I don't understand it, and it seems hopeless to me right now. The promise in Christ's coming is there's hope. There's hope. Second line I love, he appeared and the soul felt its worth. 
And that's the other thing that Christ's birth brings to us, that sense of worth. That God cares about you infinitely more than you can imagine. That he sees in you value and worth. I love the way the song puts it. The soul felt his worth because it speaks to the depth of your being, the depth of my being. You have a soul. And the soul is the deepest part of who you are. The soul is what what drives your life. it's, It's what defines your identity. And what God did in Jesus Christ was he showed to us by his birth, by his life, by his ministry, and even in his death and his resurrection, that you are of infinite worth to this God who created you. At the deepest part of who you are, God sees something of value. Now, again, the way that we tend to derive our sense of worth is through our accomplishments. We live in this cycle of works by which we think that by our accomplishments and by our achievements, we gain significance. And we rely on that significance to sustain us. And out of that, we derive our sense of identity. I've been reading a book recently called The Cycle of Grace, and it says we've got it all wrong. The book is written by a guy, uh, two guys named Trevor Hudson and Jerry Haas, and it's based upon some work done by uh, a Christian psychiatrist named Frank Lake and uh, a theologian named um, Emil Bruner. And what they did was they, they had worked a lot with people involved in, in full-time ministry particularly missionaries in India, and found that there was this high burnout rate with people who gave themselves to the work of the Lord. And they said, this can't be. What, what is going on here? And, and so did a lot of interviews with these people to discover what was driving them and where were, they, where were they trying to get their sense of identity from. And then they compared that with the life and ministry of Jesus. And when you look at the life and ministry of Jesus, it's just the opposite. In fact, he begins his ministry at his baptism. And you might remember the story, as he is baptized, when he comes out of the water, that there appears like a dove that descends upon him. And this voice from heaven comes and says this, this is my son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. That at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus received this affirmation of his identity of who he was and his acceptance by the Father. Long before he told a single parable, long before he preached any sermons, long before he performed any miracles of healing, long before anything else, at his baptism, he receives this word of affirmation from the Father. This is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. That Jesus knew his identity. He knew and was affirmed by his acceptance of the Father. And that became the driving source and foundation of his ministry. And out of that, he sustained that relationship with the Father by regular times of withdrawing and spending time with the Father. He surrounded himself in fellowship with other guys. That he built these sustaining graces in his life. And out of that, knowing his significance, had a fruitful ministry. And he says, the writers of the book said, we need to live in this cycle of grace, knowing that we are accepted And valued by God first and foremost. And let that sustain our life in him. That being always has to precede doing. And when we get it turned around, we burn ourselves out. We think that doing is what gives us that sense of worth and value. But Jesus had the whole thing turned around. Knowing who he was and that sense of worth and value sustained him and gave him significance so they could enter into fruitful ministry. John wrote about it this way. To all who did receive him, 
To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. Notice what he says there. It has nothing to do with anything that you or I do. It's born of God. And just like your physical birth, you had nothing to do with that. Really, think about it. All you did was show up. (laughs) Everybody else did all the work about that. So it is with this new birth. This this acceptance is done in, in Christ that he has done what needs to be done. And in that, we are given this birth to a new life. Even baptism that we celebrated this morning is a symbolic uh, uh, act of, uh, that acts out that very truth. You know, did you ever thought about this? Baptism isn't something you do to yourself. You don't go down to the local swimming pool, jump off the diving board, do a cannonball, and call that baptism. <laughs> baptism is done for you. It's done to you. And it's symbolic of that fact that this is not of yourself. It's a gift of God. And in Christ, what Jesus was showing us is that you and your soul and me and my soul are of infinite worth and value. So much so that God himself would invade our world and take on the weariness of this world so that we could know that kind of a relationship with God. Which leads to the third aspect of this gift, that in Christ, God has given us the ultimate gift of love. Placide Capot put it this way in the song. Truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. No one ever loved like Jesus loved. He was the embodiment of love. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. And I think that is the perfect description of what love is. That someone knows the truth about me, yet graciously chooses to love me anyway. Jesus came as the embodiment of both of those. He knows the truth about you. He knows the truth about me. Yet in his grace, he accepts us and values us just the way that we are. And that's how Jesus lived. That's how he ministered. Jesus engaged in conversations that nobody else would have conversations with. Jesus wasn't afraid of harming his reputation by hanging out with the wrong sorts of people. He was willing to touch lepers who no one else would touch. He was willing to engage in conversations with with, um, tax collectors and a woman caught in adultery. He never stopped loving people. Though he knew the truth about them. Though he knows the truth about you and about me, he doesn't stop loving us. I like the way Andy Stanley puts it. Jesus liked people who were nothing like him. And people who were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus. It was the embodiment of love, truth, and grace. And I don't know about you, but I am in desperate need of grace every single day of my life. And the promise that we have, you don't have to say loud, amen that loudly. You are too, okay? Let me, now you can say amen. All right. We are all in need of His grace. 
And in Christ, God was showing it in the perfect way. Truth and grace expressed in love. And he goes on. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. Literally, grace on top of grace, on top of grace, on top of grace. He doesn't stop giving it. And in that, there is hope. In that, we find that sense of worth. In him, we experience that love. Now, here's the last thing you need to know about love. Love by its very nature cannot be something hoarded to ourselves. See, the very nature of love is that it's something that must be expressed. And that's why Jesus told his followers, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Because we live in a weary world with weary people, imperfect people, Broken people, hurting people, struggling people. We are all in need of His grace. And we who have experienced that grace cannot possibly keep it to ourselves. And in the same way that God expressed His love and His mercy and His grace to us through the birth of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago, the way that He showed it to us in His life and in His ministry and His death and resurrection... Now he says, in the way that I have loved you, you love one another. Would you bow your heads with me? Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Venetia, California.